0: That psalm is a prayer for deliverance, a prayer for rescue from wicked men who are in power, who have authority. But it's a prayer of confidence. God hears his people when they cry out, God answers and provides the deliverance they crave. Really, this is the psalm of Israel in Egypt, isn't it? Calling out to God, praying for deliverance, praying for rescue from. Wicked Pharaoh and those in power with him who were destroying them. Who were even using the law to bring about their injustice. And our text this morning is part of, how, or is part of the introduction to how he was going to do that. He was raising up Moses as his deliverer. And as we'll see in our text, Moses was not all that certain that God had picked the right guy. And so God, as we'll see in our text this morning, God demonstrates that he is not dependent on the person whom he calls. He is not dependent on the strength of the one who serves him. But he uses that which is weak and despised and even in the eyes of the world dead in order to deliver his people unto life. We're going to look at Exodus 4, verses 1 through 9, but we're going to start reading where we left off last week at verse 13 of chapter 3. Then Moses, now Moses is standing before this bush that was burning, but not being burned up. Then Moses said to God, If I come to the people of Israel and say to them, The God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, What is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say to the the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and thus I am to be remembered throughout all generations. Go and gather the elders of Israel together, and say to them, The Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, of Isaac, and of Jacob, has appeared to me, saying, I have observed you and what has been done to you in Egypt. And I promise that I will bring you up out of the affliction of Egypt to the land of the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. A land flowing with milk and honey and they will listen to your voice and and, and you and the elders of Israel shall go to the king of Egypt and say to him the Lord the God of the Hebrews has met with us. But each woman shall ask of her neighbor and any woman who, gives, who lives in her house for silver and gold jewelry and for clothing. You shall put them on your sons and on your daughters, and so you shall plunder the Egyptians. Then Moses answered, But behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, for they will say, The Lord did not appear to you. The Lord said to him, What is that in your hand? He said, A staff. And he said, throw it on the ground. So he threw it on the ground, and it became a serpent, and Moses ran from it. But the Lord said to Moses, put out your hand and catch it by the tail. So he put out his hand and caught it, and it became a staff in his hand, that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has appeared to you. Again the Lord said to him, Put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like snow. Then God said, Put your hand back inside your cloak. So he put his hand back inside his cloak, and when he took it out, behold, it was restored like the rest of his flesh. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. And if they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some of the water of the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water that you take from the Nile will become blood on the dry ground. Amen. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Beloved congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, Before starting on any sermon series, I try to select my sermon texts for at least half of the series. I find it to be very helpful to know where you're going before you start heading down the path. The first time I preached through Exodus, my intent was to not stop at verse 9 in this chapter, but to continue through verse 17 because that whole section speaks of how God was equipping Moses to go and minister to the people of Israel and deliver them from the land of Egypt. It seems like that whole text holds together as a text of equipping. But then when I actually got there, I discovered, A, that there was far too much in that text for one sermon, but also that there were really... Two aspects of what God was speaking there, of what God was doing there. The second aspect, the second half of that text, we're going to look at next week. We're going to see that that's the text that really focuses on preparing one who is weak for great service. And that's a, a text that's a great encouragement to us when, when God calls us to serve Him in ways that we think we're just too weak to fulfill. But first, he gives Moses three signs. And those signs are of great significance, not just as a means of preparation, not just as a a means of accrediting Moses as God's chosen servant. These signs say more about God than about Moses because they're carefully selected, carefully formulated to teach Israel, even to teach Moses who God is and what he's like and how he works. And so the text we're looking at this morning really isn't about Moses. It's about how God provides signs that attest to his power to deliver. And that's our theme. God provides signs that attest to His power to deliver. But before we consider those particular signs, we need to very briefly discuss the concept of signs in Scripture, signs in the life of God's people in general. The signs that He provides are miracles. At God's command, Moses is to do something... And what he does provokes a result that is utterly unexpected. It's the sort of result that makes magicians so popular. You expect one thing to happen, something radically different occurs. However, God's purpose in sending those miracles, unlike the purpose of a magician, is not just to provoke amazement or entertainment. God provokes a response that demonstrates his power and that attests to the truth of His Word. And that's what His signs always do. They attest to His power, and they testify to the truth of His Word. We see that in the signs that were done by men like Elijah and Elisha. We see that in signs that were done by the apostles. We see that especially in the signs, in the miracles that were accomplished by Jesus. In verse 8, God says something curious. He's given Moses at this point two of the three signs, and he says, this this is a literal translation, he says, then it will be if they do not believe you nor heed the voice of the first sign, they may believe the voice of the latter sign. That's an interesting way of putting it. Those signs, those miracles... They have a voice. They speak. They declare a message. And that's true of all the miracles that we find in the Bible. In John 5, verse 36, Jesus says the miracles that He performed testified that He was from God. They had a voice. They spoke. Those works that He did were the reason, according to Nicodemus in John 3, were the reason that people believed that He is from God. Because those signs testified to his divine origin. In John 10, verse 25, Jesus said that his miracles speak and bear witness that he is the Christ. And later in that chapter, he said that they testify to his unity with God the Father. The miracles that God sends speak. They testify. They bear witness to God's purpose. And so it is with these signs in Exodus. As we consider these miracles, we're going to see that each sign, each miracle, has at least three things to say. They have something to say, first of all, about God's power to deliver Israel from slavery. At the same time, they testify to God's power on behalf of His people for all people at every age, or in every age. But meanwhile, thirdly, they all point to Jesus. They all point to the ultimate deliverance that God later would send. Three messages spoken by each sign, together attesting to God's power to deliver. And the first sign, related in verses five, or 1 through 5, speaks of God's power to deliver triumph through what is weak. And that's our first point. The weak thing in these verses by which God will deliver, is Moses. Remember what God has called Moses to do. He's to gather together the elders of Israel in Egypt, telling them that Yahweh, the God of their fathers, has appeared to him, and that the Lord intends to deliver them out of the land of Egypt. Then, he is to approach Pharaoh to seek their release, knowing that Pharaoh will refuse, but trusting that God will glorify himself as he brings Pharaoh to the point of sending the people out. That's the calling God has laid upon Moses. But Moses' response shows that he is in fact weak. Behold, they will not believe me or listen to my voice, he says. Now, Moses had reasons, we'll talk about in a minute, for why he believed they wouldn't listen to him. But regardless of those reasons, Moses should have recalled that God knows what his people will or will not think and that God is sovereign even over the hearts and minds of his people. When Moses speaks this word of doubt, they will not believe me or listen to my voice. He's contradicting God, who said in verse 18, they will listen to your voice, and you and the elders shall go to Pharaoh. Moses is saying that he doubts God, that he knows better than God. He's weak of faith. But again, he did have reason for that. For one thing, he, he knew that the people of Israel didn't hardly know him. They knew of him, that he was a an Israelite who was saved from the slaughter of the boys, but they knew him distantly because he grew up in Pharaoh's palace. And what they did know of him wasn't very favorable. He acted rashly. He killed an Egyptian who was was beating an Israelite. He tried to mediate between two Israelites without being invited to do so. He fled from Pharaoh's wrath. We haven't seen him for 40 years. There's no relationship there. There's no reason for them to trust him. And, and it wasn't just what the Israelites thought of him. In his own eyes, Moses wasn't all that impressive. He was a shepherd a man who spent four decades out in the wilderness following the sheep. Now God would make him to be a prince and a deliverer over hundreds of thousands of people? It must have been laughable in Moses' eyes. But it's not just the relationship, and it's not just the job. In verse 10, we'll see next week, Moses didn't feel he was gifted for the calling. He says there that he speaks poorly. We're not sure exactly what that meant. He might have had a speech impediment. He might have just been extremely bad at expressing himself. And 40 years following sheep out in the wilderness really doesn't help with that. Whatever the specifics, Moses was confident... That he had no business being the spokesman for anyone, much less for God, before his people and before one of the greatest kings of the earth. And speaking of that king, there was another reason for Moses to doubt. Moses was an exile from Egypt. He was a wanted man in Egypt. And he was a shepherd, whom, if you recall from back in Genesis 46, every shepherd is an abomination in the sight of the Egyptians. So Moses has an abundance of reasons, he believes, to think that God got the wrong guy. We can kind of understand where he's coming from. Nonetheless, God said, go do this. God said, they will hear you, they will believe you, and Moses doubts, he's weak. But it's interesting that God doesn't rebuke him for that. He could have. He could have thundered his disapproval, but he doesn't. Instead, recognizing Moses' weakness, he points to his shepherd's staff. What is that in your hand? It's my staff. Understand, a shepherd's staff is basically just a big stick, right? They, they go through rugged ground all the time. They needed a, a walking stick of sorts, but it was more than just a walking stick. It was... It was a great help to them. They would use that staff to guide the sheep, to separate out those that needed to be looked at separately. They used that staff to count the sheep, causing the sheep to pass under it so that they could keep accurate count. They even used it in moments of need to dissuade predators. That staff was something that every shepherd had. It was a veritable symbol of being a shepherd. And therefore, in the eyes of Egypt, a sign of his being an abomination, in the eyes of Moses, a sign of him being weak and unable, God says, throw it on the ground. And Moses does, and immediately that staff turns into a serpent. Now, we're not told what exact kind of serpent, but what we see here gives us some pretty good clues. For one thing, it's the size, evidently, of a shepherd's staff, which makes it pretty large, five, six feet long. We know the region, which was on the Sinai Peninsula. And we also know that Moses, a shepherd, ran from it. As a shepherd, he would have been extremely familiar with all of the snakes of the region. If a shepherd runs from a snake, you should probably follow him. And that tells us that very likely this was an Egyptian cobra. Egyptian cobras, generally they won't hunt men. You know They would just as soon avoid you. But they won't really flee from you either. And if they bite you, they have one of the most venomous bites you're not likely to recover from that moses knew what he was doing when he fled from it but then the lord says to him grab it by the tail and here we learn that moses does in fact have some faith because he does so and immediately it turns back into his staff now the question is why what is the purpose of this sign Well, God helps us out on that in verse 5. This sign would serve that they may believe that the Lord, the God of their fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, has appeared to you. Now think through that a minute. How will this sign convince the people? What is the message? The staff clearly speaks of a shepherd. It, It points to Moses. But the snake, what does the snake represent? What is its message? It's not a random thing. As though God went, hmm, that shepherd's staff is long, it's thin, it looks like a snake. No. God had a purpose for this. You see, a a cobra, especially, a serpent, spoke of kings, Egyptian kings, Egyptian pharaohs of that era, wore upon themselves the symbol of the cobra. Because what other creature strikes such fear in the hearts of men? And what other creature is so sovereign, so able to bring about its own will? It's no coincidence also that the word used here for serpent, there's a few different words for snake in Hebrew, but, but this is the one used back in Genesis 3, for the serpent that tempted Eve and led Adam into sin. You see, this staff turning into a serpent, it is a symbol of Pharaoh, which Moses will control. But it is a symbol also of evil, the evil that afflicts all of mankind, the evil that enslaves us from our earliest moments. God is demonstrating that Moses has been given the power to control, that Moses has been given the the authority over Pharaoh, king of Egypt, and in fact the evil that he represents. It's a sign that shows God's power. To deliver triumph through what is weak. In the immediate situation, God is assuring Israel he is able to deliver them through Moses. He might just be a shepherd, but this shepherd is able to turn his staff into a serpent that speaks of Egypt and then to turn it right back into a harmless staff. That was to be a sign of assurance to them. What he speaks is true, it's real. This is the God. Notice he identifies himself not just as God, but as the God of Abraham and of Isaac and of Jacob. This is the God who has raised up this great nation of Israel from one man and his wife, both of whom were too old to have children, who had Isaac in their old age. And from them has come this people that is more numerous than the stars of the heavens or the sand on the seashore. In that This sign speaks to God's people of every age regarding a greater deliverance. See, Moses is beginning to be portrayed for us as a living image of Christ. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was weak and lowly, like Moses. Not a shepherd, but a carpenter. A mere man in the eyes of the world. Raised up in Galilee, a place scorned by people of power. In the eyes of the world, Jesus was weak. He was a nobody. He had no power, no authority, no hope. But through him, God would show his power to triumph over evil, over Satan himself. So this sign, beloved, is a call for God's people of every age to faith. Faith not in mere men. Moses is weak. He's just a man but faith in God who uses weak men to demonstrate His sovereign power over evil. Just as He would use Moses, such a weak man, so He would use Jesus, who came in the form of weak men, to deliver not just from Pharaoh, but from all the evil that afflicts us. But then God gives a second sign. Again, verse 6, again, the Lord said to him, put your hand inside your cloak. And he put his hand inside his cloak. And when he took it out, behold, his hand was leprous like the snow. Now, the word, the Hebrew word for leprosy could be used in the Bible to describe a few different conditions. Some of them quite serious, some of them not as serious. But they all had this in common. They afflicted the skin No one had any idea what caused them, and no one had a cure. The worst of them caused the muscles and the tissues to deteriorate and eventually to die, starting in the extremities of the hands and the feet, progressing inward to the core of the body, afflicting also the inner organs, so that it was always fatal but so that it took 10 to 20 years of misery before that fatality occurred. So when Moses sees his hand suddenly struck with leprosy, that had to strike fear into his heart. But then God tells him to return his hand to his cloak. And when he does, his hand is entirely restored. What a relief, but also what a shock. Surely Moses is convinced by this that God's power is utterly limitless and Israel also by this sign would see God's power to deliver strength to what is withered, which is our second point. See, the transformation of Moses' hand was a symbol of Moses' own existence and purpose. See, leprosy was the exile disease. They didn't know what caused it. But they knew that in many of its forms, when one person got it, pretty soon another person and another person and another person got it. They didn't understand germs. They didn't understand disease transmission the way we do. But they knew the only way they could save themselves from an outbreak of leprosy was to cast this person out of the camp, out of the city, out of the village. And so they would exile the lepers to live on their own. Or if there were a few, to live with one another, away from society. In fact, the only way they could come among society was to proclaim their uncleanness so that people would give them a wide berth. They weren't allowed to have any contact. In fact, generally speaking, when when people were diagnosed with leprosy, as they were sent from the place, funeral rites were held for them. Because their family knew they would have no further relationship with them. In that sense, Moses himself was already suffering a form of leprosy. Not a physical leprosy, but the exile part. Early in his life, he was whole. He was a member of an important adopted family. But then, he was exiled. Became a man with no home. An Israelite, cast out of Cast out of Israel, cast out of Egypt, cast out into the wilderness. To be sure, he received an adopted family, obtained a wife. But even so, he was a nomad, a shepherd, wandering through the wilderness of the Sinai Peninsula with his sheep. But like his hand, Moses was about to be restored. God was sending him back to his people. God was promising him new strength by which to deliver his people. And with a suddenness that was stunning, God was taking this man who was essentially a leper and was making him whole. Again, this is a sign testifying to God's power to deliver strength to what is withered. God is showing Israel by this sign his sovereign ability to restore and to strengthen his servant Moses. Moses' exile... From Egypt, wasn't an accident. God ordained that. God ordained that he would have to flee from Egypt, that he would have to go out in the wilderness 40 years, that he would have to learn the lessons of being a shepherd. God ordained all of that and God ordained his coming back. He's the only one who could do that. The God who made a nation out of childless Abraham and Sarah, the God who brought forth a priestly people from deceptive Jacob, the God who preserved the life of his people through Joseph's enslavement, the God who called Moses and sent this second sign was the only one who could deliver Israel from its place as a slave nation. To the displacer of disobedient and rebellious nations in the promised land. Right now they were withered. Right now Israel was weak. But through this once exiled man, God was going to deliver them, magnify them, and use them to demonstrate His strength. How amazing is that? He does the same thing for us through Jesus. We... We're not chosen of God. Because we were great or impressive or smart. It's not us. In the eyes of the world, we're anything but. Right? We're not the folks living in mansions. We're not the folks calling all the shots. But God has chosen us to demonstrate His strength He has brought us into a kingdom that has no end and that one day will cover all of the creation. And He is using us to proclaim the entrance into that kingdom to men of power, to women of influence. They look on us and they say, who are you? Well, we are nothing, but we serve the one who is everything. We were withered, but we have been made strong and we have been made strong by the one who looked withered in the eyes of the world, who who was cursed, who died on a cross, the most vile and despised method of death, but who has been exalted to the right hand of glory in heaven to wield the strength of God Himself over all nations and all kingdoms on behalf of His people. That's what this sign showed and that's what this sign indicates to us. That though we are weak, God is strong. Though we are withered, God is able to use us to strengthen others. And then a final sign. If they will not believe you, God said, or listen to the first sign, they may believe the latter sign. But if they will not believe even these two signs, or listen to your voice, you shall take some water from the Nile and pour it on the dry ground. And the water you shall take from the Nile will become blood, On the dry ground. Now, this sign uses two substances, and we need to understand them in the way that Moses and the Israelites would understand them. The first sign is water from the Nile. The Nile River represented Egypt's life and prosperity. Everything good in Egypt relied on that Nile River. We need to understand that. That land is arid. It gets very little rainfall. The soil is not all that great. But every year the Nile River would flood its valleys, would cover the land with a fresh layer of silt, which was filled with nutrients, which was able to nourish the ground. Throughout the growing season, they would use the waters of the Nile to irrigate their fields, The ports on the Nile River gave them access to trade both into the heart of Africa and out through the Mediterranean Sea. The Nile was their lifeblood. And in fact, they worshipped it as a god. They called it Hapi. They offered it sacrifices. They regarded it as a living being. And blood. Blood. Blood conveys life when it's in the body. But when it's poured out of the body, blood represents nothing but death. This was the sign then. God would have Moses take this sign of life, this this substance that symbolized to Egypt all that was good and alive, and pour it out on the ground where it would become a symbol of death. And in doing so, God would reveal his power to deliver life by means of death. It's hard for us to grasp how completely Egypt identified the Nile River with life and goodness. Like I said, they, they worshipped it. And by this sign, God showed that he was poised to destroy their false god. Kids, you've learned, most of you. The first plague on Egypt was turning the Nile River into blood, right? And that's what he was indicating to Moses and then soon to the elders of Israel. That that's what he was going to do. He was going to take that river of life in their midst and he was going to replace it with death. And in doing so, God would demonstrate his intention to destroy rebellious Egypt, by this sign, God was calling Israel to expect that, to expect that he would triumph not only over Hopi, but over all of their gods, over all of their confidence, over all of their strength, and he was going to utterly crush rebellious Egypt that sought to crush them. He was going to bring them to nothing in order that his people might have everything, that they might have life, that they might have freedom, that they might even be enriched by the hand of the Egyptians. He does the same for us. He does the same for us. Look at our own nation. We live, despite what the liberal academics would tell you we live in the freest land this world knows and evil powers evil men and women seek to use that freedom and that prosperity that we've been given to celebrate and to magnify wickedness what they use it for, right? Rebellion against God. They they use it to emphasize and to advance their rebellion against God, but, but God is bringing that to an end, isn't he? God has been bringing them low, and meanwhile, he's used that freedom and that prosperity and that peace that we've been given, he's used it to nurture his church, to empower his kingdom, so that we who are weak are able to Go forth with the gospel into all the world. Much of the gospel that has been flourishing in places like the Middle East and Africa and South America has flourished there because of the resources and the missionaries and the insights that have been sent from this land. But most of all, this sign speaks of Christ. Christ would deliver God's people into life and freedom eternal. And he would do so by pouring out a river of blood, not confined to the riverbanks of Egypt, but blood that flowed from his own veins. Not blood that would dampen the silt of Egypt, but blood that would fall on the hard-packed dirt of Golgotha. And that blood, when it flowed, would give life. But there would be an essential difference. When Moses turned the water of the Nile into blood, it brought death for Egypt and life to God's people. God's people would live because of that sign and all that it indicated. But Egypt and its land would be destroyed. But when Jesus poured out His blood, not only would His people the world over receive life, but by His blood... Life and cleansing and freedom would come to the creation itself. Because you see, Adam's sin enslaved all the world to the defect and the fallenness and the brokenness of sin. And only the blood of the last Adam could redeem it. And it has. We don't see it yet. We still see the brokenness and the fallenness of this world. But the victory has already been won because the blood has already been poured out and very soon Jesus will return and we will be able to see this creation utterly renewed and restored so that no sign, no evidence, no defect of sin will remain. The victory that Jesus brings is like that of Moses but infinitely greater. And it falls to us as it fell to Israel believe it trust him be confident that the one who sent the sign is able to bring about all that the sign indicated our God is able to deliver triumph through what is weak strength through what is withered and life by means of death he did it Through Moses and the works of Moses in Egypt, when he brought Israel out, he did it far more powerfully. Through Jesus and the works that he did, and the death that he died, and the life into which he arose. And that's ours if only we will trust in him. And if we do trust in him, not only do we have life, but we will bring life, we will bring strength, we will bring wholeness as instruments in God's hands. To Him be all the glory. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank You and we praise You that You have fulfilled in Jesus all that these signs of Moses demonstrated. Enable us, we pray, to live in the light of those truths, trusting in Jesus for the deliverance and the strength that we need testifying to what He has done, that we too, weak though we be, might be instruments in Your hand to draw others to trust in Jesus. May Your kingdom flourish. May Your name be glorified. For we pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.